you, Ryan. And it is a joy to be back at Montana Bible College. And uh, as uh, Ryan indicated, my acquaintance with his parents and the history that led up to Montana Bible College, and I'm, I'm an MIB grad myself, uh, just goes back a long ways. And yet the reality that he was talking about in that collaboration is that we sense as leaders of mission agencies and schools in this western area that there's a dynamic to ministry in this area that is unique. And we believe that schools like Montana Bible College and some of the others that were there engaging with us are places where God can raise up the type of servants for this area of ministry with understanding, preparation, and vision for reaching Christ. I was sharing with a gentleman earlier, I don't know if he's here right now, uh, but Randy, uh, there he is, I didn't see sitting back there, that uh, uh, whenever I went through my educational experience and uh, I really had a desire to come back to the West and God didn't put me there immediately. I served as pastor in Indiana and Michigan and Pennsylvania before God brought us back out this way. But I've had a heart for the, the Western culture and the, and the ministries in the West and what we call rural and small town churches. Now, that doesn't mean we exclude metro areas. That's not the point. But just recognizing the type of, of area that we're in and how to serve that and to do it well. And so I really appreciate being able to be on campus with you. As uh, was indicated, I'm the director of Rocky Southwest Bible Church Extension. That's a mouthful. RSBCE will do. And uh, we are engaged in church planting and assisting churches to be growing as Bible testimonies for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that in many of these small town communities, the, the growth of a church plant in some of those communities will never be enormous. But I have the conviction of my heart and the deep understanding that wherever God's people are, they need good, godly, servant shepherding. I had the awesome privilege. I almost was in tears Sunday morning. I had the awesome privilege of speaking at a little church where I began my ministry 46 years ago up in Sims, Montana. The people in that congregation aren't the same people that were there when I was 46 years ago. But that was there where I began my ministry. I was ordained by that church. And I know that a facility is not the church, but just to be in that church building and see the continuation of the ministry of the gospel in that community through that little church was just such a blessing. And to serve with them that day and minister the word of God to them. Their, their pastor just recently resigned and they're without a pastor right now. Not in my territory, it's not even under my mission. But if you're looking for a place to serve, you contact Fred Jones. Talk to him. Get under his tutelage. There's a need for a, a people leader, a people shepherd up at Sims. We are looking for servants of the Lord to be engaged in church planting, to come alongside existing church plants and serve in a place where you can be mentored for a while, to do an internship, uh, to just launch out and say, God, just put this on my heart. I want to be engaged in church planting. Our philosophy of church planting is summed up in probably one or two words. Words that are not new to you, 
but words that are foundational and basic to all ministry. Evangelism and discipleship. Churches are birthed out of those two ministries. If you're going to be involved in church planting, you must be involved in evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel, and discipleship, the maturing of Christ's followers. And out of that process, the Spirit of God brings together a group of people that come into what we call a local body of believers, assembling together to glorify God in worship and teaching and fellowship and ministry. That's our heartbeat at Rocky Southwest Bible Church Extension. I'm glad that is a digital clock because I can't read it very well <laughs> from here with my glasses. Uh, but for our time this morning, I want to just talk to you very briefly about a, a subject that's been dear to my heart in, for the last couple of years. Uh, I don't speak on it regularly, but it's something I've been engaged with in my, in my mind, my heart, my studies. And it stems out of a study I did about two or three years ago when I was asked to bring a message at the IFCA International Church Planning Conference. And as I was preparing for that message, I was just drawn back again to what I titled the centrality of the cross in missions. And one of the reasons why I was drawn to that, and don't misunderstand me, there are many facets of missionary enterprise. But I am convinced that whatever the facet is that we're engaged in, somewhere in that ministry, there has to be the issue of the message of the cross being declared, distributed, proclaimed, made known. And so as I looked at that, I, the Lord just laid on my heart, you know, the, the centrality of the cross. First of all, the centrality of the cross in the mission of Christ himself. You'll recall from your studies of the Gospels that Christ said over and over again that I must go up to Jerusalem. When I get there, this is what's going to happen. And his disciples said, what? In fact, Peter said, oh, no, Lord, you're not going to do that. You know that context. And Christ was continually reminding his disciples that central to his mission in coming to the earth in the incarnation was the cross. And then there's the centrality of the cross to the message of Christ. And of course we see that in Paul's writing to Corinthians, right? Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. He gives us that little nutshell of the gospel. The message of Christ. When I proclaim the message of Christ, somewhere in that proclamation, the cross work of Christ is made known. And then there's a centrality of the cross and the mandate of Christ. We think of the Great Commission, the mandate. And yet I'm, I'm astounded that in Luke, when Luke records that Jesus meets with his disciples and he talks to them and he takes them into the to the Old Testament, he explains from the Old Testament that these things must happen to the Messiah. And he said, now then go and preach these things as well. And so the mandate that we're under to take the message of Christ, the centrality of the cross is in that mandate. But what I'm really going to focus on this morning in our few moments that we have is the centrality of the cross to the meaning of life. My life verse is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on that same epistle in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 says that we don't both save in the glory of the cross. So young people this morning, would you just think with me for a moment about what is the centrality of the cross to the meaning of my life as a follower of Jesus Christ? Galatians 2.20 says something took place there, right? I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, in this pursuit of life, if there's anything I have to boast in, it has to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of songs about the cross, but recently, Gideon Townend gave us a a new hymn. You're familiar with it, right? The, The Power of the Cross. That's what I want to talk about this morning for just a moment. The power of the cross in my life. Take your Bibles with you, with me and turn to Colossians chapter 1. I'm certain that as you study theology here at MBC, that uh, soteriology will be one of those places where you delve into the cross in your studies. Let me just give, and I don't always do this, but let me just give you three books that I think will be very helpful in deepening and broadening and expanding your understanding of the work of the cross and the cross work in you. Um, First of all, Leon Morris has written a book entitled The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Now, I've been in the ministry 46 years. I'm 68 years of age, just about in July. So a lot of the resources in my library go back a little ways, okay? But these are good, solid works. You can still find them. Leon Morris, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones, simply titled The Cross. John R.W. Stott, little sidebar here. Stott has had some problems theologically in the latter years of his life. But he wrote a book that's, that's good, The Cross of Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to get into those and just take this little bit of a exposure I'll give you today to the power of the cross and keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into that subject. But with your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1, I want to just zero in on a couple of verses here, but let me give you a little bit of context in the passage. You are aware that Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to believers who are being uh, overrun with, with philosophical ideas and worldviews and, and distorted theology and heretical teachings, particularly about the person of Jesus Christ. What Paul addresses in Colossians were the pre-stages of what came to be known as Gnosticism. Young people, as you step out of this place of preparation into ministry, you are stepping into an arena of ideas that strongly oppose and reject the message you want to proclaim. And yet, the truth of the Word of God constantly tells us that there is a power In the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a supernatural power because it is the power of God himself. 
And so as Paul unfolds this whole epistle, it's a short one, of Colossians, he is helping the believers to, re- to be reminded again that these Gnostic ideas that are beginning to surface and undermine their faith need to be destroyed by reinstating in their mind the understanding of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we are everything. He is our all in all. We are complete in Him. But in Colossians chapter 1, if you look at verse 12 in particular, Paul makes a statement to us that just has arrested my attention. And as I looked at that statement in, in, in my studies, I kept saying, okay, what does this little verse mean? Verse number 12, and it's, we're breaking into a, a sentence, I know that, where he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. Now think with that for just a moment. God the Father has done something on our behalf. He has qualified us for something. I remember whenever I was studying to take my CDL license to drive larger trucks and and buses. I had to qualify in order to receive the CDL. I couldn't just walk in and say, I want one. They said, well, I'm glad you do. Go study, come back and take the test, see if you qualify, right? The Father has done something for you and for me. He has qualified us for something. Which means that prior to his action in qualifying us, we were not qualified. So what has he qualified us to do? It's right there in the verse, isn't it? He's qualified us to share or be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light. Young people, are you living in the joy of the expectation of your inheritance for which God the Father has qualified you to participate in? So I looked at that verse and okay, the Father has qualified us to participate in the inheritance of the saints. How did he do that? What did he do that qualifies me to participate in that reality of being a part of the inheritance of the saints in the eternal light of God forevermore? Well, you're a good student. You know the answer's right there in the text, right? The very next verse, he starts to explain it. In verses 13 and 14, I'm just going to give you two quick hooks to hang my thoughts on today. Paul begins to show us how the Father has qualified us to participate in the eternal inheritance of the saints in the glory and light of his presence forevermore. First of all, the believer is in a new kingdom. And secondly, the believer has a new experience. Notice what he says. Verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness. We'll stop right there for just a moment. We'll go on. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So in this qualification, there are two things that the father has done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now this word deliver here is an interesting term. It's an aorist passive or middle. 
in the Greek structure, which simply means that whatever the action is, we didn't cause it to happen. It was something that was done to us. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. He has saved us. He has brought us to a place of deliverance. He has preserved us from something or someone. And in the text, we find that this word denotes the idea of the believer's spiritual liberation by God the Father from Satan's kingdom and darkness. God has in the cross work of Jesus Christ rescued us from the domain, the power of darkness. Now it's interesting, this word dominion or domain here is the same word that speaks of authority in Matthew chapter 28. All what? Authority. It's the same Greek word. And so prior to my coming to know the power of the cross in my life in salvation, I lived under the domain, the authority of darkness. And God has rescued me. This word darkness in scripture is always contrasted with light and symbolizes the rule and reign of Satan in ignorance, error, and sin. So it's from this power of this sinful, evil, rebellious, vile world that God in his amazing grace, we just sang about it, has rescued me. And in that rescuing me out of that domain of darkness, he has qualified me to participate in light. But go on in the verse a little bit further. For sake of time, I can't turn there, but just make a side note. In Ephesians 2, you're familiar with the passage. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul describes for us the kind of condition we were in that domain, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, right, has quickened us. Thereby, we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we were dead. And he has done this marvelous work in rescuing us out of that. But notice also he says, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And again, the Greek word that is used here is very interesting. It's a term that is used in the secular writings of the time to speak of what we call colonization. When you take people from a country and you move them to another location and you sit them down and for colonization. North Africa had a lot of that, right? From the European nations. Uh, think back, if you've studied U.S. history, that's how we got started, right? The colonies, the colonization took place. As people left an area and came and were colonized in a new location. God, in this rescuing us out of the domain of darkness, and forgive me for being a little bit flippant with this, doesn't leave us just to kind of float around on our own, figuring out what to do. He puts us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son. We are colonized into a new environment of life in his son. 
And so we belong to a new kingdom. Now stay with me. We're going to come back to this thought in just a moment. But furthermore, in verse number 14, not only do we have a new kingdom that we live in because God has qualified us for that, but he's also given us a new experience. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. I know that this has been impressed upon your hearts probably in your classes on several occasions. But the little prepositional phrase here is translated in whom, many places simply in Christ, is a profound, profound prepositional phrase you want to just look at and labor in over and over again. It speaks of a union in Christ that is now ours, that we did not have before. What we need to understand is this. As you traverse through life, everybody that you see, everybody that you bump into, everybody that you know, is either in Christ or not in Christ. There's no other place. And so it says, in whom? In this beloved one, in Jesus Christ, and our union with him through faith. We have a new experience now called redemption. You know the meaning of that word. What was it that qualified us to be participators in the saints in the light? God did a work of redemption on our behalf. He bought us out of that place of domain of darkness and sin and all the condemnation that is there. He redeemed us. But more than that, look at the next part of that phrase. He has forgiven us as well, right? He has forgiven us. This word forgive, as you well know, means to release, to to pay the debt, to pardon. And so all of this work is a part of the power of the cross, which begins to define for me the centrality of the cross and the meaning of my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. How is that fleshed out? And I want to close with this, all right? How is that fleshed out? Well, stay in Colossians and turn maybe a page in your Bible to chapter 3. If the power of the cross truly has meaning in my life, and I have been qualified to be a participant in the inheritance of the saints in the eternal kingdom of God in light because of this work in my life by the grace of God, so what? You want to know something? My God never leaves his grace with the question of so what unanswered. When his grace is operative in our life, there are results that flow out of that and there are exhortations that guide us, and there are commands to be obeyed. Look at Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment. Look at verse 1. If then, let me ask a question, students, what type of sentence are we looking at? If then, what type of sentence is it? Do you have any Greek students here? Taking Greek yet? What type, what type of students, what type of, what type of phrase is this? What type of sentence is this? One word is all I'm looking for. Conditional, thank you. 
It's a conditional sentence, right? When there's a conditional sentence, we need to say to ourselves as we read scriptures, do I fit the condition? Or to phrase it in other ways, does that condition describe me? All right? And I'm not going to go into the classes of, of conditions right now. But if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So verse number one of chapter three takes this whole thing of qualified to be participants in the saints of God in eternal life forever because of what God has done and says, now my response has to do with the focus of my life. No longer is my life focused on this world in which I live. It's focused on the eternal destination of where I'm going. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Not only is there a focus of, to where I look now, but there is a mental perception as to what I think about. I set my mind on those things as well. What I'm trying to say, students, is simply this, that the grace of God operative in my life in salvation because of the power of the cross transforms how I see things and how I think about things. He goes on to say, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That takes us back to that inheritance, right? Therefore, now in light of those truths, therefore, consider, here's the application of all of that. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. If God has brought me out of the domain of darkness, if he has put me into the kingdom of his dear son, if he has redeemed me by the price of the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary, if he has forgiven me of all of my sin, therefore, Consider the members of your body as dead to these things. For it is, an, it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also, what's the next word? Once, in my t- NASB. You also once walked. What's the implication? I'm not walking there now, right? I'm not walking in those things now. When you were living in them, when you were still under the domain of darkness. But now, in the present, you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you uh, laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you put on the new self. And for sake of time, we're going to wrap it up. But here's what I'm saying is simply this. The power of the cross to the meaning of my life is not that I can just kind of go, I've been forgiven. Thank God. And I'm not minimizing that. I stand in awe 
of the reality of that. But the power of the cross into the meaning of my life says that I live my life differently. Because I no longer belong to the domain of darkness. I'm participating in light. And the Father has qualified me to do that. Because his son, my Savior, went to the cross. I'm not going to stand before you and start listing out things about how that applies. I want you to take the principle of the cross, apply it to life, and let the Spirit of God lead you into living out your life for the eternal glory of God with a visible demonstration that the Father has qualified you for something different. Father, take these few stammering thoughts Seal them to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Transform our lives by your grace and mercy. Encourage our faith by truth of your word. Empower our service by your Holy Spirit. That in these humble vessels of clay might be manifested the reality of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. And may we, with Getty in town, and say, Son of God, slain for us, what a love, what a cost. I stand forgiven in the power of the cross. To God's eternal glory. Amen.